Welcome to Well Connected by Murad's podcast series, Why Is No One Talking About? Where experts and insiders cover hot topics related to mind, body, food, and of course, skin that are under the radar, taboo, or unexplored. My name is Esther Olu, otherwise known as the Melon Chemist. I'm a licensed esthetician and cosmetic chemist. And I'm Michelle Wong, also known as Lab Muffin, also a cosmetic chemist. And today we're going to be talking about clean apps, which I think of as all the apps that have popped up recently that are meant to help you figure out what's in the products you use and the food you eat. They categorize each ingredient and tell you how, quotation marks, safe the product is. So Michelle, I quickly mentioned the Yuka app and the EWG. What are some other clean apps that you've seen and how do they work? I think Yuka and EWG are probably the most popular clean apps. There is also Clearia and Detox Me, which I've also seen. And the way they work is you open it up on your phone and you scan a product's barcode or you look up a product. And it's really nifty. It actually then loads up a list of all the ingredients in the product with a color-coded system. So you'll see different colors, like red means that that ingredient is dangerous, green means it's safe, yellow is in between, so it's got some concerns. And I think the really annoying thing is it looks really nice, but it doesn't really mean that much, which we'll get around to in a sec. But first off, um, why do you think these apps have become so popular? There are multiple reasons why I think that these apps are growing with increasing popularity. And I really do feel that it stems from just society in general, that we have an inclination to believe in negative information. And that everything is bad to some extent. And I think a really good example would be vaccines. We're more inclined to believe in like conspiracies and negative information than we are in science. So it doesn't really matter how robust or thorough the data is. If you have fear and fear marketing is a pretty effective tool and it will get the consumer to believe, you know what, I knew all of these things are bad when that's not necessarily true. In addition, it gets people to like not believe in science, as I ever mentioned, but it perpetuates conspiracy thinking and creates mistrust in the industry, not just cosmetics, but um, it, this can apply to any industry. So I believe that overall, it's the evolution of like fear marketing and what's safe and what's not. And it just creates negative feelings. And obviously, no one wants to have negative emotions. They want to be happy. So if a brand is saying this is safer This is going to make a consumer want to stray away from those negative emotions, and they're going to believe that a brand is protecting them. So essentially, it gives like a false sense of security, in my opinion. And I think another reason why these apps are growing is because we've seen documentaries and how they push certain narratives. We recently saw Not So Pretty. (laughs) Not So Pretty. And how they appealed to audiences by using an emotional angle. They posed professionals, even though they weren't in the relevant industry, to make it seem like they were the authority on what is toxic and what's not. And I would also say another reason why it's popular is that People don't want to actually do the research themselves. These apps are really easy to use. You just scan something and that's it. Yeah. And just to add to that, I think also, I think people deep down, like most of us are good people. And so if we find out that something is dangerous, we want to share that with our friends. We want to share that with our family. We want to protect the people we love. And so I think because they're using these powerful emotions of fear that you just mentioned, 
people, yeah, they want to share these. They want to protect their friends and family. And that's why it tends to go viral. Agreed. I think this also really makes sense given the rise of so many brands that call themselves clean. What does clean even mean or what can it mean? So clean doesn't really have a real meaning. The way that most brands have really defined it is they each have their own list of so-called dirty ingredients that clean products can't have. And you'll see that the clean brands actually have products that are dirty, according to another clean brand's definition. And so it's all very muddled up. But I think they really focus on ingredients because the ingredients list is the most information we have about products. It's got all these words. It's probably the most wordy part of the label. And so I think they tend to seize on that. But one of the problems really is that you'll see that a lot of these dirty ingredients are actually really useful. So one of the categories of ingredients that tends to be on dirty lists is preservatives. And this is not that surprising because preservatives are there to kill microbes, which means that if you test them on different cells and studies, which is what you do, you'll see that they'll have harmful effects on lots of cells because, I mean, they're killing microbes. They're going to kill other things. But If you zoom out and look at what they're doing in the product, they're killing bad microbes, which can be bad for us. So first off, I think the most obvious thing is that they make products go moldy and go bad. And so you have to throw them out faster and buy more faster. So it's a massive waste of money if you don't have a well-preserved product. But in more extreme situations, if you have an overgrowth of microbes, then you can actually end up having skin reactions to them. You can also end up with infections. So there's a whole bunch of case studies in the literature where you'll see a lot of the time it's babies. Sometimes it's people who are on immune suppressants and they end up with really bad infections. Sometimes they can't even be lethal or they can just be permanently like they can just make you lose an eye or something. And so, yeah, they're there for a reason. And now these clean products are kind of demonizing these very necessary ingredients. And yeah, I think that's just not good (laughs) for consumers, for the industry, for where we're going with safety, really. So now that we've established what these clean apps are and why they're popular, Esther, I know that people need to be wary of these apps, but what warnings would you have about these apps for people listening? I would say that it's really important to take these apps with a grain of salt. They're not really understanding fundamental concepts when it comes to toxicology, chemistry. It's really important to take this into account because we can't observe everything as a black and white issue. There's a lot of gray when it comes to the cosmetics industry, and this can also be applied to other industries. A very fundamental concept in toxicology that a lot of scientists like to reiterate is that the dose makes the poison. Anything at a certain dosage can be harmful to a consumer, even water. And that's very important to stress because we all need water to survive. In very high concentrations, a consumer can die from water poisoning. So when apps don't necessarily take this concept into account, it's very easy to sway the consumer to be afraid of something that is perfectly safe at a minimal concentration. Any app that is focusing on making ingredients black or white, dirty or clean, good or bad, isn't a reliable source of information. And that's why I think it's very important for consumers to be very nuanced when approaching these apps. In addition, it's also really important to notice that a lot of these apps, especially the Yuka app, rely on the appeal to nature fallacy. And this fallacy is based on the aspect of us perceiving that things found in nature are going to be safer and more healthy for us and things that are synthetic or made in a lab are more harmful. 
when using the Yuka app, you'll notice that a lot of brands that are natural get very high ratings, but brands that have synthetic ingredients have lower ratings. This isn't an accurate way to understand the safety of a product. And it's also important to note that some of the brands that rank really well on the Yuka app and other apps have received warning letters because their products are not properly preserved or their rigging regulations. So these apps are not accurate evidence to understand the safety and testing that goes into these products. So by now we know that clean beauty might not mean much of anything, but let's talk about what clinical means. How do you define a clinical brand and why is it important for consumers to understand this? So clinical is another really poorly defined label. Just like clean, there's no real one definition. And so I guess what I personally think of as a clinical brand is a brand that has done a lot of clinical testing on their products. So in other words, they've tested their products on actual people and they've looked for results. And that's not the case with all clinical brands. Like some clinical brands call themselves clinical because they're used in skin clinics, which I think is... <laughs> I mean, any clinic can buy any brand. They don't really have to have evidence. Um, but yeah, I personally think that clinical brands should have testing on real people showing demonstrable results. So yeah, there's like lots of little brands that don't do any of this clinical testing and they still call themselves clinical. But there are lots of bigger brands that do do this clinical testing. And they do tend to be quite popular in skin clinics because they give good results. So examples are like Murad, where they do a lot of clinical testing with their products to make sure they actually work. So Esther, we've talked a bit about clinical testing. What exactly is clinical testing? Can you give us a bit more details on that? Essentially, when it comes to clinical testing and clinical trials, it really consists of a company getting a population of people that are using a product for a certain period of time. And they're essentially documenting the effects that are going to occur with um, before and after photos. They might be using a control group in which the consumers are not using the product that has the performance ingredients to compare it to another group of people that are using the product that has the performance benefits. And this essentially helps quantify the data that's being received. So you're getting quantitative data and qualitative data. And there are multiple ways to design clinical testing, but essentially you're trying to understand the benefits of the product that you're trying to test. So there are five types of claim substantiation that you'll see brands use. A very popular type is subjective. And this is where a consumer is perceiving how a product works for them. Another substantiation method is professional grading. And this will require experts that are assessing any benefits that may be seen with a product that a consumer is using. Another method is a bioinstrumentation where they're using standardized methodology to quantify the effects of a product. Another method is in vitro where they're using cell cultures or it's pretty much essentially done in glass. And lastly, you have the formula itself where brand is actually doing the clinical trials to understand the performance and effects. So Michelle, why do you think that clinical trials are the most beneficial method of claim substantiation? So from my background, which my PhD was on medicinal chemistry, so I was at the very start of like the whole drug pipeline. 
And so it's something like 10,000 molecules will have in vitro activity. So that's activity inside a cell. And then out of that, only one of them will end up being a useful drug. And obviously, skincare isn't the same as a drug, but it's sort of a similar process. Things that work on cells do not necessarily work on humans in a finished formula because humans are very complex. Lots of things happen on us, like the ingredient might not get to the cell. The ingredient might not get to the cell in a high enough amount to make a difference. There's just lots of little things like that. And so that's why it's really important to see, like the best test is to just test the final thing that you are actually planning to use. So that gets rid of all of those variables in between. And so, yeah, that's why in vitro testing, which, as you just said, Esther, is where you're testing things inside a cell or a cell culture inside glass, that's very different from how something works in, let's say, a rat versus how it works in a human, because they're all very different systems with very different complexities. There's also the fact that putting an ingredient in a formulation, formulas are complex. And again, it's the sort of thing where as much as we understand the science behind how the formulation works, you know, having an emulsion, how the emulsion holds together, that sort of thing. At the end of the day, it's really hard to model or predict how that ingredient will function in the formulation. The quickest way, the easiest, most straightforward way, and the most reliable way is just to put it on a person's skin and see what happens. And there's lots of complexities in different formulations that we know about already. And there's lots of examples in our everyday products. So if you have glycolic acid, for example, glycolic acid is an alpha hydroxy acid. It's a chemical exfoliant. And on an ingredients list, it will just be listed as glycolic acid. But different formulas will have different pHs. And glycolic acid works best at a low pH. It penetrates skin much better at a lower pH. And so even if the ingredient list looks pretty much the same, you can't see what the pH is until you put it on someone's skin. I guess you can test it. But then, um, yeah, that still works differently because you've got different ingredients in there that will change how the glycolic acid gets into the skin. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, just putting it on someone's skin will tell you the answer. Another example that's in a lot of formulas now is microencapsulation, and this is where the ingredients basically get packaged into little bundles, and these bundles can help the ingredient firstly stay stable in the formula so it doesn't break down as easily, and so even if you put in, let's say, 10% of something into a formula at the start, when you actually use it, it might not be 10% by that point because some of it's broken down and turned into something inactive. And so having these capsules protects the ingredient and stops it from breaking down. And so, yeah, something that's encapsulated might still be at 10%, whereas if it's not, it could have dwindled down to 2% by that point. These capsules also help release the ingredient onto the skin and help penetrate better as well. And so again, having that capsule can really help. And again, it's kind of hard to see in the ingredients list. If you're familiar with a lot of the available encapsulation, then you can sort of spot it by seeing like all the separate ingredients. But a lot of the time, the ingredient making the capsule is also useful in emulsions for other reasons. And so you can't 100% tell whether or not that product has that encapsulation and whether or not the other ingredients in the formula could even break down that encapsulation. In addition to that, another example is coacervation. And this is a very interesting technology where 
it's essentially producing coacervate droplets. And when this happens, you're having two liquid phases that are going to coexist. You have a polymer-rich phase that is called the coacervate phase or coacervate droplets. And then you have a dilute phase, which is the polymer deficient phase. So what's occurring and I'll give an example of shampoos. Shampoos love to use silicones to coat the hair strands. And to get silicones to adhere to the hair, they use coacervate systems. Our hair generally has a negative charge. And to get something to adhere to our hair, we have to use positively charged ingredients. A catch is that when we're using cleansing systems, cationic surfactants, cationic polymers, and anionic surfactants don't really play well together. So a way around this is by using coacervates. And this mechanism of using conditioning shampoos is also called dilution deposition. And it really relies on this concept of coacervation. And by doing clinical trials, you can understand which surfactants and polymers play well together to improve deposition onto the hair. Besides shampoos, this technology is also used in body washes sometimes. Yeah, so in summary, I guess a big round up of all that formulation nerdery that we just talked about. Clinical trials are how we know if clinically tested products actually do what they say they'll do. Like it is the ultimate test of the results of a product. So I guess the next obvious question is that how can consumers identify which products actually have true clinical testing and trials behind them? The best method for observing if a brand has done clinical testing and has any clinical trials is to look for any info on the brand's website or any packaging. Any brand would not shy away from demonstrating that they ran clinical trials because they are very expensive to run for one. And this really shows that their products work and are going to do what they say they are claimed to do. In addition, this can also align with a brand's marketing. As I've mentioned, a brand will not be shy to say that they ran clinical trials. You can search on scholar platforms such as PubMed. Some brands do publicize their clinical trials for consumers to access. And this can involve asking the brand for information regarding their clinical trials. Lastly, if this is not available for public access for the consumer, don't be afraid to have faith and trust in the brand. At the end of the day, while clinical testing is a very valuable information to have, and it's a great method of substantiation, it's very important as a consumer to try the products for yourself because everyone's skin is slightly different and how one product performs on your skin can perform differently on someone else's skin. So to recap, I guess the important things we want you to take away from this conversation. First off, clean doesn't mean very much. These clean apps tend to really simplify how things work, how science works. Ingredients can't be neatly classified into good and bad, clean and dirty, because even ingredients that are very safe can be dangerous in high amounts, and ingredients that seem dangerous can be very safe in low amounts, and they can be important in your products, such as with preservatives. Clinical is a much more useful category, but at the same time, it is still not regulated. So you need to be able to look out for brands that do clinical testing, because that is probably the best evidence that we have for whether or not a product will actually work on skin. So when you're looking for skincare products, the things you should really look out for, don't worry about clean. It's good to look for clinical testing because that is ultimately the best test for whether or not a product will work on your skin or is likely to work on your skin because everyone's skin is different. And also look at reviews of products 
from people whose skin is similar to yours to get a good idea. But at the end of the day, you do still probably need to test it on your own skin because everyone's skin is different. That's it for this episode of Why Is No One Talking About? for Well Connected by Murad. Shopping for beauty products can be daunting, so we hope you learned a bit about how to be a more educated consumer today. Want to get in touch? Leave a comment or DM at Murad Skincare on Instagram or TikTok. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review and connect with us at wellconnected.murad.com. I'm Michelle Wong, a cosmetic chemist. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Lab Muffin Beauty Science. And I'm Esther Olu, also a cosmetic chemist. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram at The Melanin Chemist. Thank you so much for listening.